Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for the gospel and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus can bring. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and that it will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons on our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply email your response to pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. Today, we are going to continue in the book of Galatians. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Or if you look at it on your phone, you can turn on your phone and and look through there. Um, We're going to be in the last verses of chapter 3 of Galatians. And, you know, last week we finished with the thought that he is going to really amplify at the beginning of today's message. He talked about how Paul tells us that the law has imprisoned us, that we are um, shut up, he says in verse 22, that, that the scripture or the law of God is what he is making his case there, has shut up everyone under sin. And he's going to expand that today. So let's look in verse 23 through 29 and see what uh, the Word of God says for us this morning. It says this, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Let's pray over these verses this morning. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for salvation. Thank you for the great gift of Jesus. And thank you for the difference he makes. The difference he makes not only in the lives of those who have trusted him, but the difference Christ makes in the entire world simply because he came and demonstrated your love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. 
So God, thank you for that difference. I pray you would, you would speak to our hearts today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, one of the interesting ways that stories are told are, are using the what-if type of storytelling. Um, there was a, a book that was made um, and there's lots of books and movies made using that, but one particular was written in 1964 that was entitled If, and then it said History Rewritten. And one of, the, one of the premises it looked at is, what if Lee would have won at Gettysburg? And it traces the, the thought pattern um, of what impact did that battle make? And, and that, that ends up being a great way to tell stories of taking a pivotal moment in history and seeing what would have happened if that had changed. There's, there's lots of science fiction and, and adventure movies that are based upon this and books. Um, there, there's a couple that I can think of. There was a movie called Fatherland and, and another uh, series of, uh, on TV, I think, that, or, or on one of the online things that was what... What if the Allies did not win World War II, and what would, what would the world look like then? And it, and it becomes a very powerful story of, of what um, our worldview is, what our culture is like. D. James Kennedy, who was a well-known Presbyterian minister, he wrote a book entitled, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And he takes a look at this world, and specifically our nation, and asks the question, what if Jesus was never born, then what would our world and nation look like? He shows the impact of Jesus on politics and the foundation of this nation, because this nation, whether or not it's told this way or not, this nation was founded because there was people in other parts of the world who wanted to worship Jesus freely. They wanted to come here, and they wanted to worship in a way their conscience would allow them. And that begins the beginning of our country. The book talks about Jesus' impact on education. Nearly every one of the first 100 colleges and universities that are, that are in this country were founded to train people how to read the Bible and be better ministers of the gospel. And we are talking about those that, that uh, we might think um, have no Christian roots at all, they were actually founded to be educating ministers. Places like Oxford and, uh, well, and, well, that's in another country, but Harvard and Yale and Princeton, even Brown University was founded by a Baptist uh, group who wanted people to, to be better ministers. Our, our country's public education system the, the reason we have public schools is because the, 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 the community in Massachusetts in 1640, this is long before our country was born, they instituted what's called the Old Deluder Satan Act. And that said this, that when there were 100 people in a colony, 
They need to start an education for the young people how to read, and this is why, so that they could read their Bible and not be deluded by the, the attacks of Satan. And that's why we have a public school system in this country. Because of the old Satan, or the old deluder Satan act. We could go on and on about what history would be like, what our country would be like, what our lives would be like if Christ had never been born. That is a little bit like what Paul is trying to get through his passage today. He is going to compare what it's like before Jesus and after Jesus. What are our lives like with Jesus and what was our life like without Jesus before we came to know him? And he reminds the, diff- he reminds the Galatians here of the difference that Christ makes in their life. And he does so by telling them it is not made, this difference was not made by a legalistic following of the law. That is not the difference that has happened in their life. It is because Jesus has come and poured out his grace upon them and they were transformed. And the the lesson we can take is that Christ has made a difference in your life as well. Whether or not you are following Christ, whether or not you're a believer today or not, Christ has made a difference in your life. Now, if you are a believer, he has radically transformed you. There's been a real clear difference. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's good to remember what our lives were before Christ and what our lives are like now. What difference has Christ made in your life? And so we can understand this difference And it it becomes clearer to us if we first know who you are without Christ. If you know who you were without Christ. Now, many of us have been believers for a while. I mean, if we took the average or or the total age of, of, you know, I I accepted Christ when I was, you know, eight years old and I am this age now, and we added that all up, there would be hundreds and hundreds of years is my guess um, there, there are people here who have been believers for a long time. There are those who have been believers for a short time. But when we have been believers for a long time, sometimes we forget what our lives were like without Christ. And Paul reminds the Galatians church about their life before Christ And he says in in verse 23, before faith came. And we're just going to stop right there for a minute. Before faith came. Now, that phrase, he is is talking, what he means by that is saying before Christ came into your life. Christ is the object of that faith. And that's what he is making. He's identifying faith here with the object of faith. So him saying before faith came is is another way of saying before Christ. It's B.C., your life B.C., right? Before Christ. And what does he say we are like before Christ? First of all, he says before Christ we were prisoners. We were prisoners. Prisoners. Look in verse 15, or 23. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. 
before faith came, it says we were kept in custody. It was a, that word is a word that was used in the military for shutting off someone completely from other people. It was shutting off all avenues of escape. It was used when a city was under siege that there was absolutely no way they could escape because they were held in custody in that city. It also has the sense of a garrison that's watching over the town, that every move is, is being watched. But it's also that word that's used for being in prison and in, in a place where there is absolutely no freedom. The law kept us confined and trapped and in custody, Paul tells us. When we want to have a relationship with God based upon what we do, based upon our good works, Paul says that's imprisonment. That is being kept in custody. Before faith came, we were shut up to the faith. Some versions say we were imprisoned. And the picture is being locked up and shut up on all sides with absolutely no way of escape. Before Christ came, we were all prisoners. We were locked up in our cell of sin, and there was no way for us to escape because we were being watched by this guard who was very good at what he did to keep us in those chains and in our jail cell. Before Christ came into our life, we were prisoners. But not only were we prisoners, he says in verse 24, we were supervised. Verse 24, before the law came, or, or therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. We were prisoners and we were children who needed tutored. But that's too, really too soft of a word about what, of really what's being used here. The word tutor, and some versions translate this guardian, the word tutor there is a, is a Greek word that's pedagogos, which doesn't mean a lot unless you're a teacher and you know that word pedagogy. The word pedagogy means teaching of children. It is the, the principles of, of what does it mean and how do you train a children. It is that, that English word is based upon the word that's being used here. The, and, and the word, uh, they, they call that, that person a, a pedagogue. The Greek scholars would call him that. Now, when, what, what this person would do, what the pedagogue would do, he was a slave that was you know, employed by the Greek or Roman families to have general charge of a boy from about age 6 to 16. Many times, slaves in the ancient world were, were people who were the best and the brightest in their culture. So Rome would go and they'd conquer another nation and they would take all the best and the brightest people there and they would come home and those generals would use those best and brightest to watch over their children, not only to train them and to teach them, but to discipline them. They said, we, when these, this boy grows up, I want him to have the best education and I want him to know what it means to be a man and I want him to have this discipline in his life and he would put this slave in charge of this boy 
And he would tell this slave to watch over his son. And the child was under this constant care and supervision of, of this. The, the pedagogue was part babysitter. He was part chaperone, but he was in charge of discipline. And so you think about this. You've got a, an eight-year-old boy that the master says, I want this boy to understand self-control, and you, slave, are the one who is going to teach him that. So when this boy acts up and gets in trouble, the slave gets in trouble. So you can imagine the slave being the disciplinarian. If this kid gets out of line without abusing the kid because he was the master's kid, this guy was to make sure this kid was going to grow up to be who the master wanted him to be. So he was a teacher, but he wasn't necessarily primarily a teacher. He would help the child review his lessons but he was more of a disciplinarian. And the picture here is this, that the law isn't so much a school teacher who's gentle with the child to make sure they learn what they need to so that they grow up to be able to accept Christ. The law is a disciplinarian that says, you must be this way or else. That is the purpose of the law. When it says the law is our tutor, it is, it is, yes, it is teaching us we need Christ because what the law says is you do not measure up. That's what the law tells us. And it is this tutor that says you need something more. And like every pedagogue who was watching this child from age 6 to 16, the law would eventually find itself out of a job because, because Christ came. That's what he says. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. When God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus... And then he died on the cross for our sins. He made it possible to be justified, to be declared innocent by our faith in what Christ did. And we could be declared innocent because of Jesus' work, but the law did not contribute to that justification. The law was a guard that kept us in prison and disciplined us until Christ would come and set us free. We were, we, before Christ, we were prisoners under guard. That is the picture that Paul is painting for us. You know, in the early 1930s, U.S. had a problem because in the 1920s, with prohibition, organized crime rocketed. And there was all kinds of criminals now that were out uh, and, and doing work. And the frightened public demanded a response from the government. And the government responded with, uh, with a powerful message called Alcatraz. And in 1934, they set up this prison in San Francisco Bay called The Rock 
that says this is an unescapable prison. It housed some of the the, it housed some of the most notorious criminals from 1934 to 1962, um, including Al Capone. And in those 29 years, there were only 36 prisoners that were ever involved in an escape plan. Seven were shot and killed, two drowned, the rest were recaptured. Two prisoners made it off the island, but then they were returned. And then we got the the June 1962, um, you know, escape that Clint Eastwood made famous, Escape from Alcatraz, where three men made it off the island and were never found. But many speculate they were never able to get off because of the treacherous, I mean, they never made it to land because of the treacherous waters of San Francisco Bay. It was the inescapable Prison. Alcatraz was one of the most successful examples of an escape-proof prison. But there is one prison that is even more inescapable. There is one prison that we cannot ever escape in our own power. And that is the, the prison of sin. It is, the, it is the bondage that we have to the law. And no matter how hard we try or how much cleverness we think we have, we cannot escape in our own power. But Jesus has the key, right? In fact, Jesus is the key. Without Christ, we are hopelessly imprisoned, and the law is the jailer that is keeping us in the prison and watching all escape routes saying, you cannot escape you, were, you, you must be perfect, and you are not perfect, and the law is, is, does that for us. And those of us who are believers today, we can rejoice and say, thank you, Jesus, because I am free. Because Jesus has set us free. I'm no longer a prisoner and I no longer have a warden, a warden looking over my every move. And that's not because we are so good at keeping the law. The reason is, is because we've placed our faith in what Jesus did on the cross. But we all know people who are still prisoners. And here is the tragedy of the situation. Those people without Christ have got everything turned around. They think we are the prisoners. They think we who are free, who follow Christ, are somehow imprisoned. And they think they are free when they are in fact rotting in a cell of sin. And we have the key to let them out to be able to go to them and say, you can be free through Jesus Christ. And to be able to, to tell them, I know the one who can set you free. If you're, if you're sitting here today, if you do not know Christ, you've never accepted Christ, you are a prisoner. And you are 
you, you are being watched. You have a babysitter, a custodian, a guard that's watching your every move telling you it is wrong. You are a slave, you're in captivity, and you're a prisoner, and you may not know it, you may not accept it, but the Scripture says that is where you're at. That, for every person who's ever trusted Christ, that is where we came from. That is the B.C. in our life. But the good news is Paul didn't leave us there. Christ didn't leave us there. With Christ, there is freedom and hope. And what he tells us, he tells us to remember this, that you can understand the difference Christ made in your life because first we know who we are without Christ, but then we know who we are with Christ. And what a great comparison he gives us here. Isolated in a cell with no way of escape, with a guard watching over us is our life before Christ and with Christ, he tells us, but now that faith has come, there is something different. Now that Christ has come into our life, we have placed our faith in the one who can set us free. Things are different now. He makes everything better, everything good. It says the first difference he makes is that we are free. Look in 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. He's saying we are free. There is no more guard. There is no more teacher to this, to this child who says you've got to be this and you've got to do this and you have to be this way. We have, in essence, matured when we've come to know Christ and we have become an adult. And we don't need someone watching our every move to, to tell us when we have made mistakes and how we don't measure up. Instead, we trust in Christ, knowing that he, he's taking the measurement for us, and he is perfect. When, a, when this young man turned a certain age, the pedagogue had worked himself out of a job because at 16 or 17, whenever he graduated from that, he didn't need that anymore. We have grown up, and we've been set free. And Paul, you know, he, he just named who our guardian was. It was the law. And now he says we're no longer under the law. We've been freed from the supervision of the law. And we've been, we are now governed by the Holy Spirit. When we have trusted in Christ, we don't need the law. Because the Holy Spirit, God himself, resides in us, moving us and teaching us and causing us to do what we need to do. And that's why John says in 8, John 8, that's why Jesus says in John 8, 36, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. We are free. We are free from sin and death. We are no longer in that prison. We will not experience death. Our bodies may or may not, depending upon the Lord comes back, when, when he comes back, our bodies may expire, but who we are will never experience a separation from the Lord, which is what death is. We will never experience that. We will never, we, we are free from the power of sin. We, we, still, we still sin, and that not, should not be an excuse. Ideally, we should sin less and less and less because of the power of the Holy Spirit within us. 
but we are no longer obligated. We, we are free from that. We are free. We don't have the law looking over our every step. Believers are no longer enslaved to sin. They don't have to experience death. They don't have this guardian over them. Christ has set us free. That's the first that's the first comparison but then he goes on we were imprisoned we were set free like paul and and uh well paul and james that were in in prison and james was killed and peter was sitting there waiting to be killed in the book of acts and god just had this angel walk through the prison and walk them right back out we've been set free But we also see, not only are we free, but we are sons of God. Look in verse 26. For you are all talking to believers today. So if you're a believer, this is talking to you. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. So uh, think about all this. We, when we've been going through Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, he tells us that all who are of faith are sons of Abraham. He has said we are sons of Abraham. And then he said you were under the pedagogue like, a, like minor children, but every boy grows up and begins to have the rights of an adult son. And believers are like those children who, who have no need of this babysitter, but instead have full rights as a son. And that meant something in Jewish life. That meant something in, 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 the, in the world which the Galatians lived as well. We have full rights as sons of God. He says we've been, first he says we've been baptized into Christ. And, and that word baptized, it's, it's the word that means immersed. It does. It doesn't mean sprinkled into Christ. It means immersed into Christ. When a ship sank in, in this time frame, the Greek people would say it was baptizo. It sunk. It was enveloped by the water. We have been enveloped by Christ. We have been immersed into him. And we have put him on like clothes. You all put on your clothes. You all have your, indis I mean, your distinct styles today. You looked at the closet and you said, I want my body to be covered in this way. So you put on these clothes. When we are believers, we have been immersed into Christ and have put him on like our clothes. It's like we put on a Jesus costume and we're walking around and people are seeing Jesus. That is what he is saying. Whatever happens, and, and what this means is that if we've been enveloped into Christ and have put him on, it means whatever happens to Christ happens to us when it comes to inheritance. And that is the message he's trying to get across here. Specifically talking about Abraham's son and the promises and the inheritance that comes from being Abraham's son. And then he talks about the inheritance that we have as believers. And this is the message they needed to hear because the Judaizers had shown up in the Galatian church and they were saying that 
we as Jewish people, we get the inheritance of Abraham, and the best you can hope for, Galatians, is to become second-rate cousins. And Paul is saying that's simply not the case, that we have become sons of God. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, when you surrender to Christ, you become a son of God. You get an inheritance from God. And the one who receives the inheritance, you, you, will, you will... Christ, we... Okay, the scripture says we are co-heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ gets as an inheritance, think about that. The son of the creator and sustainer of life. The son of the one who speaks and worlds show up. Who speaks and sons just kind of appear. The one who holds all things together, that father has a son. And he's going to get an inheritance. And the scripture says... You, believer, get the same thing. That is our promise. That is what Paul is trying to get at them. He, we have been put into Christ, and Christ has been put into us. I think Steve preached on that um, a couple weeks ago. And he is telling us, we, we have been baptized into Christ and become co-heirs with him. Now, we're baptized into Christ. A lot of people think that means we have to be baptized to be saved. And that's not what Paul's saying at all. In fact, the whole message of Galatians is it isn't religious exercise that saves you. It would be a direct contradiction of the whole message of the book if it said we were baptized to be saved, that we've been baptized into Christ, and, that, and somehow we are, that is talking about water baptism. And in fact, he tells us, Paul says in Colossians 2.11, he makes this connection he says in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. He's just simply saying that those who have believed were baptized because they believe. He's saying that we have been immersed into Christ and we have been enveloped by him. And all this is saying this, as sons of God, we, are, we have put on Christ. We are wearing uh, the clothes that make us look like Christ, in, in, in other words. When people see us, they should see Christ reflecting out of us. And he also says that when we have done that, we become sons of God, and all that means is we become co-heirs. That's all it means. <laughs> it's so much. It's so much. And then he's going to talk here about the oneness 
that we have, this unified life that we live together. And that's the next difference Christ makes. The, the first is that we are free. Free from sin, free from death. The second is, is that we are we, uh, I I'm, my, lost my, my place. We are sons of God. We are co-heirs. We, we get what Christ gets. And the third thing is that we are unified. Look in verse 28. Verse 28 talks about how unified we are. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that Christ has come into our life, believer, and we've placed our faith in him, we are free, we're sons of God, and we should be unified. We should be able to have unity. Unity doesn't mean uniformity, okay? And I want to make sure we understand that. It's not that we all are exactly alike. Christ has uh, created us individuals, we are all different from one another. And then the Holy Spirit has gifted us in different ways and then placed us all in one body. We are to be unified, but we are not, we're not supposed to be uniform. We're all different. But in our salvation, there is that uniformity. We can... We can be one with one another and be different from one another. But the world in which we live in thinks about this differently than what the Bible tells us. And this is a message that's being pumped out 24-7 right now. And Paul teaches us in this short little verse what we should know, what God wants us to know about unity uniform uh, unity i should say about unity and first he says race should not divide us race should not divide us he says there is neither jew nor greek now it's important to understand that when god save us when god saved us that does not erase cultural differences on becoming a Christian, a Jewish person stayed ethnically Jewish. A Greek person stayed ethnically Greek. People from Poland who accept Christ are still born in Poland, right? I mean, they didn't change where they came from. People who are born in India and then came to know Christ are still Indian. And they, ha they know that culture and are, are from that culture. Cultural differences are not obliterated, but, whilst tell, but Paul is telling us that these cultural differences are not to separate us spiritually. That we can have unity with a believer from India and from Poland and from Canada. That there is unity to be found there. But the world is telling us right now what, what Paul is telling us is that these cultural differences are no longer to separate us spiritually, and the world is telling us right now that the color of our skin should divide us. That is the message that's being preached right now. 
in this lost society in which we live that rejects Jesus and rejects the word of God, they want to teach you, they want to teach your children, they want to teach your grandchildren that unless someone's skin color has a particular skin color, that the rest should, should bow down and submit to people of another skin color, and that is not unity. And there are those right now, lost people and churches alike, that calling a spade a spade, they want to promote racism in order to promote unity. And it doesn't work, because that's not how Christ works. In this passage right here, it says at the foot of the cross, there is not Jew or Greek. In the body of Christ, there isn't black believers and brown believers and white believers and, I don't know, whatever color you want to attach to a person. In the kingdom of God, there is not to be division based on what we look like or where we're from. In God's economy, in God's family, we are children, we are sons of God. That's what the scripture says. So the answer to racism isn't found in us. The answer to racism is Jesus Christ transforming the heart from the inside out. And there is unity found there and only there. In Christ, we are unified, and that means race shouldn't separate us. It also means social status should not separate us. It says in, in 28, there is neither slave nor free man. And just like we said about the Jews and the Greeks, the statement doesn't mean that if a slave somehow became a Christian, that he was no longer a slave and he could just leave his master without any consequences in the world in which he lived in. This is also not promoting slavery by any means. It's simply saying in the world, in the Roman world, nearly, I, I, I want to say something like 90% of the world were slaves. It was the world in which they lived in. And he says, when you accept Christ, that doesn't magically somehow free you from the consequences of being a slave. What it means is that you are free on the inside out. You are, you are spiritually free. In biblical times, it was simply not going to be the reality. There were people who were slaves, they'd come to know Christ, and their position wouldn't change. But what this does mean, that in God's eyes, and therefore it should be in the Christian's eyes, we're not to judge someone on their social status. That we shouldn't look at the master and slave as somehow better or worse in biblical times, or you could say employer and employee, or you could say rich person, poor person, or you can think of whatever social status that's coming into your mind, and we're not to think of one better than the other. We are to, as, for those who have come to know Christ, we're not to see people based on social stratus, social strata where they come from, where they live, how much they make. 
The church is to be people from all different social backgrounds who can sit side by side and worship together, who can work side by side in the kingdom of God, who cry together when there is painful stuff happening in the body, who can laugh together when we're rejoicing, and it makes no difference what the paycheck is or how big or small the house is. Race should not separate us. Social status should not separate us. And gender should not separate us. He says there's neither male nor female. Now again, this does not mean that Christians are genderless. This statement doesn't mean when we become believers, our gender is somehow fluid then. That is just not what this says. If you are a man and you come to know Christ, you're still a man. And if you're a woman, you accept Christ, you're still a woman. And those are the two. God is the one who created gender. It's not a social construct. God created, it says, male and female, and that's it. And whatever gender God gave us, that is a gift from Almighty God. And we should embrace it. That's his gift to us. And when we come to know Christ... We not only embrace our gender, but we're not to allow our gender to keep us from unity. That we can be unified, male and female, uh, together instead of fighting. I want to be extremely clear here too. God has given certain roles to males and certain roles to females, not only in the family, but in the church. And these different roles, the different roles cannot keep us from having unity in Christ. Women, by God's standard of the word, based on his order in creation, women are not qualified biblically by what Scripture has to say to be elders in a church. It's just what the Word of God says. And that should not be a cause of division in the body of Christ because it's based not on opinion, not on culture, not on the latest trend. It is based on God's Word. And when asked about it, it is referred back to creation that says this is how God started things off. It's how God wants it. And it shouldn't separate the body of Christ. There should be unity found upon that truth and moved from there. We are one in Christ Jesus. In Christ Racial, social, gender barriers, they're obliterated spiritually. The foot of the cross is equal, and we all come as sinners who are unable to save ourselves, who've been freed by the Almighty God. Christ has made a difference in our life because we are free, we are sons of God, and we are unified. And real briefly, 
We are heirs. Look in 29. We've mentioned this. We bumped on it. I probably got ahead of myself. It says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. This has been culminating over the last several passages that we have read through and and I've preached on where Paul says, if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed, descendants. This is something a little different. He is saying something similar in verse 7 and 9 and verse 14 of this chapter, but he's summing it all up and he says, if you have trusted in Christ, you're Abraham's offspring. Whatever promise is coming to him and to his descendants The believers in Christ get that as well. They're heirs according to promise. And here's the thing. I've been saying we are sons of God because being a son has less to do with masculinity as it does with inheritance in biblical talk. It is a masculine word, don't get me wrong, but it was the son who inherited the father's stuff. Sonship means, for not only males, but women, sonship means that we'll inherit everything God has ever promised to give to his children. Look in verse Romans 8, verse 16 and 17. It says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also glorified with him. And that's the whole co-heirs with Christ passage. We are heirs of God's promise as God's son, but these verses in Romans tell us a greater truth that when we are in Christ, when we are children, we're heirs, but that means we're heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ gets, we get. In the Roman world, the adopted kid could not be disinherited. He had to get at least whatever it is the natural son got. He couldn't get less. And that's the, that's the corollary lesson that he is trying to teach us here. We don't get this inheritance of because of who we are. We get the inheritance because of whose we are. Because of Christ and his work. He has set us free, and then he chose us to be his children. Several years ago, a friend of mine who's a pastor and I drove to Sayre, Oklahoma, to visit a church member who had been put in a medium security prison, and we went to do a prison visit. The mom asked if we would go down there. His name was Jason. We walked to the front door of this prison. And if you've ever been like in a prison, like a, not only in jail, but I mean prison, right? Razor wire, guard towers, searchlights, mean looking people on the outside. We walk up to the door and there's an intercom button. And I press the intercom button and immediately a voice came sternly out over the intercom, identify. It's Ron Watkins and Roland Kennison to visit Jason. And he gave his last name. 
Then you hear a bzzz, and the door opened, and we walked into this cage, and the doors shut behind us, and we were now in the prison. And this, this cage first had a mesh fence, and then there was warnings that it was an electric fence, and there was razor wire, and we were, we were trapped in this cage. And we walked to the other side of this cage, and there was another button, and we pressed it, and the voice came over, Identify. Roland Kennison and Ron Watkins to, to visit Jason. Buzz, we walked through the courtyard and then came up to a building. And after emptying our pockets and shuffling through a, a, a metal detector and then padded down, we were able to go to the next door and press the intercom. And, and uh, this lady, and it's this lady who is saying this, she says, identify, <laughs> right? And so we said, visitors, is what we were told to say at that door. And we walked through the door, and then we went to another door inside. And there was a prison guard that was on the, the uh, outside and one on the inside. And we were to go to that prison door and, and ask that guard to press the button. And that guard pressed the button, and the voice said, identify. <laughs> And they, they said, there's visitors here. The door was open, and we walked into this common area where we sat and visited with Jason. We spent about four hours sitting and talking with him. And at one point, the conversation turned to spiritual issues, and we began to talk about um, what he's doing in prison and how he is growing as a Christian. Because what happened is that he had been taking Bible classes in prison. And from what my conversation with him was, is that when he came to prison, um, he, he got changed. And sometimes we hear that story. Uh, Charles Colson would be one, if you might remember that story, where I suspect if you're in prison, you realize I'm at the bottom and I need to change. And he said, you know, if you think about it, I've been in prison since I was 13. He was in his early 20s at this point. He said, I began to drink and get into drugs and all sorts of stuff. He was there for beating up a guy pretty severely. He says, it was not until I was sitting with my lawyer and as he gave the plea bargain of my sentence, I realized I needed to change. Now I see that I needed something to wake me up, and prison did it. And I would suspect prison would, for those who have uh, eyes to see. And I asked him, so your, incar your incarceration made you free? And he says, yeah, I guess so. And so I walked out of the prison with my freedom, and all the others trotted back to their cells to wait another five or 10 or 40 years to wait out their sentence. And we faced the same voice going through the buzzers trying to get out. And I just thought, man, I hope I'm answering these identify questions right because at any point, if this woman does not want to open up that door, I am in prison. And I got out only because my name was on this list that said, I was a free man, able to walk out. 
And that story is the story of all of us. We might not have beaten someone up and been put in a physical jail, but we were all in prison, unable to get out. And today you sit here either a freed person or enslaved in prison, depending upon your decision to trust in Christ. I'm going to have you bow your heads and think through this. If you've never trusted in Christ, you are in prison, you are bound by sin and death, and there is no escape. Not in and of yourself. You cannot be good enough. You can't go to church enough. You cannot help the poor enough. You are enslaved, imprisoned, bound, and under guard. But the good news the good news, the great news is that Jesus can set you free. And there are witnesses all over this that says, all over the sanctuary that says, Jesus can set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He can free you from the burden of trying to be good enough. He can free you from the bondage that sin has over you. You just have to transfer your trust to him to be identified. So when the call is identify, you can say, I am a son of the living God. God, I, I call out to you, to anyone here who's never trusted in you. And God, I pray that you would move among the, that person's heart in a way that would bring salvation to them today where they would realize their need. They'd realize their imprisonment, that you would shine the light of the gospel in their heart, and for the first time, they would truly see their condition and turn their life over to you. God, for the believer who just needs to be reminded of how good it is to be, to be one of yours, I pray that you would bring encouragement and strength where it's needed. The reminder that we are not bound by the law, but we're governed by the Spirit. And that we are free. We are your sons, and, and, and we are, we, we are co-heirs with Christ. And we are unified with other believers. Thank you for that difference that Christ has made, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 10.45 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.